Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, Boston University scholar Bernice Lerner talks about her book, All the Horrors of War, A Jewish Girl, a British Doctor, and the Liberation of Bergen-Belsen. It was published by Johns Hopkins University Press in April 2020. This dual biography explores the lives of the author's mother, a Holocaust survivor, and the British officer who helped free Jewish prisoners from the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Bernice Lerner was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly. Dr. Lerner, it's a privilege to meet you, and I commend you on this book. And it's one of the very first Holocaust books I have ever read with a happy ending. So how did you come to write this book? First, I just want to say, Kitty, it is such an honor to meet you and be interviewed by you. Thank you so much. I know that you're one of the giants of biography, so I'm really grateful. So um, my mother's still with us. She's 92 and a half. And um, it was really great having her alive while I was working on the book. I was very grateful that I was able to publish it while she was still alive because I could go to her and I could ask her questions and I could get deeper and deeper into the details of her story. So that was wonderful. Um, And she was very generous and always made me feel that I could ask her anything, anytime. And a lot of survivors couldn't talk or talked incessantly, but that was not the case with her. She just said the right amount at the right times as I was growing up. And then as an adult, much later in my life, as I got really deep into the details of the story, she was always there to recall and tell me. And sometimes I would ask her in an email so she would have time to think about it and before she would respond. But um, originally, I stayed away from writing about anyone in my family for a very long time. I I wrote a book about seven other Holocaust survivors and their post-war lives, nothing to do with my family. But finally, I was interested in the mechanics, precisely like, why am I here? How did she actually survive? So that led me to really explore the liberation. And the man most prominently associated with the liberation of Bergen-Belsen is Glenn Hughes. So you just Google the liberation and his name will come up pretty quickly. So who was this man? And and, um, would he be an interesting person to learn about and write about? And from that, I really decided that, yes, he was a character that not many people knew about. And he was a real humanitarian, real champion of survivors, maintained relationships with them for the rest of his life. It was a watershed moment in his life. And he was quite high up in the distinguished man. At the time he liberated Bergen-Belsen, he was deputy director of medical services for the entire British Second Army. And he had some really pretty important post-war posts. So anyway, I decided to write a biography of Glenn Hughes. What you've done is you have taken the story of your mother 
and the liberator of her camp. And you put these two stories together. When I first picked up the book, I thought the Jewish girl and getting out of the camp and surviving, that's heroic enough. But then as I read, I saw how each story enriched the other. So if you could just talk a little bit about how you even thought of putting General Hughes's story in with your mother's. So that was an evolution. This was a 15, 16 year project. And I wrote the book a completely different way the first time around. 15 or 16 years. I just want biographers to hear that. Well, yeah, I, I, wrote, I compl- wrote the book a completely different way the first time, so I had to completely rewrite it. But um, at some point, I decided that I would also tell my mother's story. That was important. It was important for me to name relatives who just disappeared from the face of this earth, no record of them having existed. So I wanted to put that down. And then I decided ultimately to tell it as a race against time rescue story. You know, people know about the camps, some people know about the liberation, but how did it all come to happen? And as I was writing it, I really appreciated how late the liberators were for too many people and how many men died on the way to save these people who were in the camps. So I just narrowed in on these two characters from their points of view, what was happening. And the last year of the war was so eventful in both of these protagonists' lives. You're talking 1945? The spring of 1944 to the spring of 1945. The spring of 1944, my mother's sitting down at the Passover Seder table with her family. Less than one year later, she is at death's door. Glenn Hughes, you know, the spring of 1944, he's preparing for the D-Day invasion. He's training his medical personnel. He's anticipating what's going to have to happen to rescue as many soldiers as he can and attend to the wounded and evacuate them to England. And then one year later, he's like in this hell that he had never anticipated. You know, he was a stalwart for preparedness. And here he was completely unprepared for what he encountered in this death camp. He was an OBGYN physician, right? Yes, Hardly cut out to take care of a camp of 70,000, 10,000 of whom were going to be dead. Yeah, he was an OBGYN in his civilian life, right? (laughs) In between the wars. But he remembered he was a regimental medical officer in the First World War. And I never heard anyone say this, but he loved war. He loved being in war. He loved being among men. And he was really courageous. And he was a medical doctor but he was breaking rules and taking up arms when he had to. So he was a hero, a courageous figure from the beginning. What prompted you to bring him into your mother's story? I started with him. I set out writing about him. I wanted to figure out who he was. And then people kept asking me about my mom. And then I thought, could I tell both stories? Is there a way? And everyone said, you're crazy. No, you can't. There are two separate books here. It's not one book. But at the 11th hour, I kind of figured out a way shortly before the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Bergen-Belsen, I approached an editor with this idea of telling it the last year of the war, this late race against time story. 
and she embraced it and I went with it. It's really, I think, very dramatic what happens. And I learned so much. I mean, in August of 1944, after the D-Day invasion, the great world powers, the allies, Churchill and Stalin and Roosevelt, they thought the war would be over by Christmas. So what did it take for my mother to survive, to be here? Because things did not unfold that way at all. And it was a very dramatic winter, the last winter of the war. The Germans were not giving up. The Nazis were giving the Allies on a big fight. And I was really pretty ignorant about World War II history. But the Holocaust just fits into that. You have to kind of understand the bigger picture to understand what was happening. You do a magnificent job in this book. And one thing that should be clear to any biographer listening to you right now, if you biographers have a life story to tell, don't let anyone tell you not to do it. You, Dr. Lerner, pushed through when people tried to tell you you had two books, it couldn't be done, it was too hard. The same thing that made your mother survive must be in you to just push on. It's a good lesson for writers. I remember going to a, one of the biography conferences, one of the early ones, and going up to a panelist after who had just gotten her book published. And that's what she advised me. She just said, persevere, just keep at it, just don't give up. There can be a lot of obstacles along the way, especially if you're not a big name biographer and a publisher isn't waiting for your book and it's a guaranteed big seller your confidence gets shaken a lot and the people surrounding you and your family aren't necessarily they don't know either and they're not going to always be like you know I would say my husband was supportive the first 10 years I mean that's a long time and then you know it's a big distraction in your life and it's pulling you away from things and you don't know toward what end will this, exactly. will this be published will it ever see the light of day will anyone be interested in reading it in your acknowledgments, Dr. Lerner, you mentioned Nigel Hamilton, who was president of Bio several years ago. I just wonder how he happened to surface in your acknowledgments. So Nigel and I are both members of the Boston Biographers Group. We're very blessed to have him in our group. And he's sort of like um, the senior biographer, like the seasoned one who you know, when I had problems, I would call Nigel, please help. What do I do in this situation? <laughs> so he's been wonderful and very encouraging and supportive of everyone in the group, really. I hope you belong to our group bio, the umbrella group biographers. Oh, Internet. yes. Oh, yes. I say that just because it's nice to be able to reach out. Why did you decide on a university press as opposed to, say, Simon & Schuster? Is it because you're an academic? No, it's not because I'm an academic, and it's not that I consciously chose an academic press. I actually went through an agent, but I think had I come up with this idea of this dual biography this way, I might have had a better chance of getting it published by a trade press. It just so happened. And I, I mean, Johns Hopkins was wonderful. I had a great editor. I had a great publicist. They gave me wonderful supports. So I don't know what my experience would have been like, except for I have had to do a lot of my own marketing. That's been a challenge. And I don't know that uh, trade press 
would have been more helpful? I think so from what I've seen. Tell me how you are marketing this book. <laughs> so um, I'm going about it very much the same way I did trying to find an agent and a publisher, really removing my any ego from it. You know, I don't get insulted. I get a lot of rejections. And I think about places that may want to have me speak, that may want to have people read my book. And it's a niche product. So when you do something like that, you have to zero in on what is the market. Well, really, basically, every Holocaust education institution in the United States, in the entire world, really. Um, if you go to Jewish groups, really every synagogue everywhere. Classrooms, college classrooms, any place that the Holocaust is taught. Um, education organizations that promote the teaching of the Holocaust. So it's in this case with this book, it can be quite vast. So I, I don't have the time really to, to write to every place and call every place. It takes a lot of tenacity when you're not famous, when you're a small, like when you haven't published a lot of popular books, you have to really pound the pavement and do it systematically in a way that makes sense to you. I had a lot of speaking engagements this past spring, but they were all, almost all owed to my own efforts. And you can't just email, you have to follow up with phone call and, and see if people are interested and then give great presentations. Because my book came out right as the pandemic started, I've had to learn how to give a lot of Zoom presentations. So I've gotten quite proficient. I have some good PowerPoints and also I can approach the subject from different angles. Like I can talk about how I structured the book. I can talk about the liberation, but I can also talk about what you alluded to first, Kitty, when you first you know, mentioned that my book had a happy ending. I can talk about resilience. I could talk about the education of teenage kid uh, survivors and what that was like and what the approach the educators took. So there's different angles to this subject that I can approach. I can approach it from the perspective of International Holocaust Remembrance Day in January. That commemorates the liberation of Auschwitz. Well, what happened after that? Why were there only 8,000 survivors in Auschwitz, but 60,000 in Bergen-Belsen? So I can explain things like that. Why were there more at Bergen-Belsen? Well, what was happening in the winter of 1945 was that the Russians were coming from the east and the battles were in the path of the concentration camps. The concentration camps were in the path. So the Nazis, the Germans, didn't want to hand over a single inmate alive to the Allies. So they were evacuating these camps that still had prisoners in them and marching them away from the Russians. And they have what we now think of as the death marches that occurred in January of 1945, starting then, January, February, March, marching, 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 the inmates not giving them any food. They had inadequate clothing. It was a bitter cold winter. There were about 715,000 surviving inmates in concentration camps in January of 1945. At least a quarter to a third of them died on the marches. And so in Auschwitz in mid-January, they evacuated. They took 60,000 inmates in Auschwitz and they started them on this death march. The 8,000 that remained in the camp were the sick who were in the infirmary. 
who couldn't go on the march. And they were the ones who were liberated earlier by the Russians who came in January 27th. So the largest number of surviving inmates on the death marches were dumped deep in Northwest Germany, in Bergen-Belsen. Some wound up in Dachau, some in Flossenburg, some in other places, but the largest number that were marched away, that had managed to evade the gas chambers, that managed to survive slave labor, survive the death marches, were dumped in this place in Northwest Germany where there was no habitable housing for them, no food for them, and there was a transport that came in February brought typhus in and death was ubiquitous everywhere. My mother barely, barely survived that. That comes through in the book. It wasn't like she was strong and healthy during this time. You go into great detail about your mother getting tuberculosis. How did she physically survive to this wonderful age, 92 and a half? I mean, she went through hell. Yeah. So um, in writing it, I pulled myself out of the story. I didn't write about myself at all. I really tried to divorce the fact that she was my mother and look at her. Who was this kid? Like, who was this child? And she was just 14 years old when she was taken with her family. And I think that she had had a very hard scrabble childhood. She had a lot of responsibility. She was the second of six children. She helped her grandmother run a butcher business. She had this notebook of who were the customers and how much each owed them that went with her to Auschwitz. She was thinking even as a child, she was sort of primed for survival. Like she was a free range kid in the streets of this town of Siget. She wasn't at all pampered and she was a hard worker. And she managed to pull through. And I think um, it was her attitude and her personal endowments that made her the person she was. And she didn't have children until 10 years after the war, right? She was still very young when she survived. So she had had time to sort of have her nightmares and maybe cry if she had to, or she was probably depressed and she was very sick and orphaned and didn't know what the future, how it would unfold, but she always had hope. And she's still like that. She's a very resilient type of person. I see signs in her of the survivor. She's going to figure out how to do things in the optimal way, optimal for her, but she also has a way of soothing herself. She learned in this school after the war to appreciate culture. So she loves opera and classical music and great old movies. And so she has a way of taking breaks from the sadness in this world. And she's just wonderful. You are your mother's daughter. You have <laughs> that same kind of push through. You proved it by writing this book against all odds, really. Uh, a little bit about going back to your travail with publishing with the Johns Hopkins University Press. I think you might have run into the same problems on promotion with the trade press because they're overloaded. And the authors that succeed are the authors that take care of their own promotion. But you're usually so fatigued from writing the book you just want to turn it over to the publisher and say, here, 
I've spent 10 years on this. It's yours. Now make it successful. No, well, that's a fairy tale. Yeah, I'm hearing that. Well, you're living it. Yeah. The other thing I try to do is to try to write little pieces and get them published if I can. Very smart. Like where? Oh, like right now I'm working on an op-ed about Anne Frank, like Anne Frank's next diary entries, because Anne Frank and my mom were the same age and both went through Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. So I'm working on that. I, I have my like list of places that I will pitch it and again, remove any ego from it and just go through systematically. But I've gotten things published. I don't know. I the Washington Post made by history or history news network or wherever I can get it. I'm a times of Israel blogger and I'm not much of a blogger, but I could always post something there. Yeah. It really becomes a full-time job, doesn't it? Yes. And writers have to know that. Unfortunately, they don't know it going in. How did you come up with the title? The editor really came up with the title and we were under a tight deadline and I just Um, I like the subtitle better. I just experimented with a lot of titles. It was really hard to come up with a good title. It comes from a quote by Glenn Hughes. He was the first witness to testify at the first war crimes trial that applied international law. And he said, I have seen all the horrors of war, but I have seen nothing to touch it. You mention in this book, the anti-Semitism of the Brits. Can you enlarge upon that in any way? Well, they had their political interests in the Middle East, right? So they were not too interested in Palestine being flooded with survivors or even during the war. They had no real interest in having people go to the state where the Jewish people wanted to create a homeland for themselves. So they liberated Bergen-Belsen. They were really proud of that. Their first thought was repatriation. Everybody go back home to where you came from. But obviously this was impossible for most of the Eastern European Jews. Maybe some French Jews or some Dutch Jews could go back in the, you know, in the Western countries. But it was really horrible to go back to Poland or Romania or Hungary. Your whole community had been destroyed. Everybody was gone. I mean, a few did go back. Some people even made their lives there. But the vast majority of survivors wanted to get out of Europe, get away from here. And they really set their sights on a place where the Jewish people could be safe, could be in their own land with their own laws. So almost all survivors at the end, not everyone, but almost everyone was thinking, setting their sights on on the land of Palestine. So they wanted to go and build this country where their ancestors were and where Jews had lived through all the centuries. There was still the Yishuv, the place where, where there was a community already. So that was the first thought. And um, the British, they had their interests in the Middle East. There were oil interests there and they wanted to maintain friendly relations with the Arab countries, which were really resistant. So it was complicated, but Glenn Hughes sort of wasn't apolitical. Like he just, he maybe took chances, but he really was a champion of the survivors. He would go to like the first Zionist Congress meeting and he would go to all their meetings and show up. And he would visit Israel frequently. Every few years, he was there. He advised the Army's medical services in Israel. He was very involved in that country's 
Didn't yeah. you say something in your book that he lost a promotion? Yeah, I, I sort of leave that as a question mark. Kitty, I didn't tell everything that I knew about Glenn Hughes. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do a, a tell-all kind of thing, but just well, come on now. We're now that we're talking. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So I admire you, and I admire your courage over the years. But I, I wanted to show that he was. I mean, at least something about him that was human. That even someone who had risen to the pinnacles of his career had some struggles, as we all do. You don't always get what you're striving for and what you want so badly. And I leave it as a question mark as to why he did not get a commission with the army, which he wanted very badly. Do you have any kind of opinion? I don't think it stood him in good stead that he was bucking the policies of British officialdom. But I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure. So I didn't say it outright. You know something? I see this book as a movie. This is a dual biography. It's a wonderful biography of two lives that have come together, one at the very beginning of her life and how it changes and how she comes into a system with this British general who liberates. It has all the makings of a wonderful story because there's rescue and redemption and your mother's alive at 92 and a half years old. So there's a Cinderella ending here. Now, how she ever survived what she survived also as a young girl who was stricken with tuberculosis amazes me. Well, she would say she lost the best years of her life. She was in and out of TB sanatorium for the first 10 years after the war, right? She was um, really sick. And I never, until I started writing the book, I didn't appreciate how hard she had it and how much pain she must have been in because she was always putting a positive spin on things. When she told me about her 10 post years when she was recuperating in Sweden, she always told me about her adventures or about the Swedish people or about guys she dated or about the school she went to or other things and probably more than half of those years were spent trying to heal in tb sanatoriums and it was the miracle discovery of streptomycin that saved her she was praying for a cure and you're right it is a cinderella story in that she came to this country she married my dad and she's now 92 and a half which means she's had decades of good health when she could really be a productive citizen. So she lost so much, but- She also had a very supportive sister in Elizabeth. Yes, she had this older sister, Elizabeth, and they were very different in temperament and personality. But I also came to realize what Elizabeth meant to her and her life. Because if you think about it, she lost her four younger siblings, her parents, her grandmother, her best friends, her aunts, her uncles, her cousins, and it was only her and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was only two years older than her. But in a way, Elizabeth was subbing for everyone. She was giving her this love and this admiration and caring so deeply about her, almost enough for, for the entire family. In the end, when Elizabeth died tragically very young, when my mother was burying her at the funeral, I mean, I was so upset and worried because it was such a great loss. My mother let out a wail as if she was mourning everyone, 
all the family she didn't have time or a place or the wherewithal to mourn all came out at that funeral. You did a very good job of portraying that bond between the two sisters. Thank you. How do you follow up this book? Well, I'm, I'm actually um, now working on a book about my dad, my father, and um, I'm just like gathering materials now, but I'm just figuring out how to tell his story. Well, as that last chapter says, the epilogue, remember, remember, remember. And you certainly have helped us remember. Thank you for the experience of reading this. Thank you so much. That was Boston University scholar and author Bernice Lerner talking with fellow bio member Kitty Kelly about her book, All the Horrors of War, A Jewish Girl, A British Doctor, and the Liberation of Bergen-Belsen, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in April 2020. We recorded this interview via Zoom on June 28th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.